I'll be reading selections from chapters 9 and 10 of Isaiah this morning. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put up cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Good morning. I heard there was an election this week. And it was really interesting, right? The polls had Secretary Clinton quite a ways ahead in the polls. And there was a lot of confidence in the idea that she would win the election. What's interesting, if you know polling and how that works and statistical analysis and stuff, every poll has a margin for error, right? Uh, in, in a presidential poll, the margin for error is roughly 2 to 3% in the national vote. And Secretary Clinton was expected to win the, the popular vote by about 3 to 4% of the vote. And the polls were right, interestingly. They predicted that she would win by about 3 to 4%. Their margin of error was 2 to 3%. She's going to win the popular vote by almost 2% overall. So it's very interesting that we had a close race. The polls were right. And yet so many people are surprised by the outcome. 
that President-elect Trump uh, has actually won the electoral vote. What's interesting in the polling was not that the numbers were wrong. What's interesting is how much confidence people had in the numbers, how much confidence they had in their own interpretation of those numbers, right? The best pollsters, interestingly, said all along, if, the mar- if, the, if we're wrong by 2 to 3%, within our margin of error, if we're wrong by that much, President-elect Trump could win this election. They had humility, the best pollsters, had humility about their interpretation of these events. The worst pollsters said, no, 99% chance she's going to win the election. The difference there is between humility and confidence. The numbers were roughly the same, but humility or confidence. In what what manner do we come uh, to see ourselves and others? Do we come with humility or pride and confidence? Because the reality is we're all sinners, all of us. The sin is within God's own people. The sin of the world is God's people. It's within us. It's not out there somewhere. It's right here. As G.K. Chesterton, apparently, I have humility about this story. I just need to tell you that because there's no actual evidence that this story exists, but it's been told enough times that I'm going to tell it anyway. According to the story, G.K. Chesterton, famous writer and thinker, Christian writer and thinker uh, around the turn of the 20th century, was asked, what's wrong with the world? He was asked for, you know, an essay-length response. His response, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. The reality is, what's wrong with the world is us. The problems are not out there, they're right here. They're right here. Here are the problems with the world. And so, God has built into creation ways to deal with the problems of the world, to deal with our sin, to recognize it and to turn from sin to God's compassion and healing. If we will humble ourselves and repent, God will forgive and heal us. But if we choose pride and arrogance of heart, then his anger will not turn away from us and his hand will be stretched out still. Our passage today shines the spotlight on God's chosen beloved people, Israel, and the problems that are within that nation. Israel is about to face a really evil nation. Assyria is really, really evil. But the evil that Israel needs to worry about is not Assyria's evil, but their evil. The thing that Israel needs to fear is not Assyria's violence. They need to fear God. For us, the evil in the nation is not out there being forced upon us. The evil is right here. The problem with God's good creation is not Republicans or Democrats, Secretary Clinton or President-elect Trump. The problem with God's good creation is us. The evil in the world begins with us. Because God is with us, the hope for the world begins here too. But it is not from us. It is from God. The evil in the world begins with us. So today, we will be practicing confession. We've practiced confession already uh, corporately. We'll be practicing um, individual private confession at the end of the service. You'll see on the back of your bulletin, we didn't give you our phone numbers again this week. Instead, there's space to confess And then someone that you will be confessing to. So as you're listening to the sermon and you hear the Holy Spirit telling you, ah, this is something that I can confess, stop listening to me and start listening to the Holy Spirit and go to the back of your bulletin and start and write out things that you can be confessing before God. I won't be offended if you don't listen to me and instead listen to the Spirit this morning. So 
Let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Father, you are a glorious God. You are holy above the earth, and your love and faithfulness reaches to the heavens. As we look at you and your holiness, we recognize our own sinfulness. Woe am I, Father, for I am undone, and I live among a people of unclean lips and head and hands and heart. I am unclean, and so are the people among whom I live. This morning, I pray that your, our vision of you would increase. I pray that as we see you more clearly, we would also see ourselves more clearly, that we are sinners in need of your grace. Without your grace, Father, we would be destroyed. Without your hand of mercy on us, the evil within us would undo us. And so we rely on you this morning. There is nowhere else for us to turn. We trust in Jesus. Amen. Background this morning, we've been in Isaiah, we're in chapter 9, in the beginning of chapter 10, which is in the middle of this book of Emmanuel. We just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we desperately need Emmanuel to come. That was true of them then, that's true of us now, we need him to come. Assyria is coming, and they're going to wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, and just about wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah. And God gives his people four judgments today, four stanzas of judgment. And in each of these stanzas, uh, verses 8 to 12, verses 13 to 17, verses 18 to 21, and then chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, four stanzas, each of these stanzas contains a sin or a cluster of sins that Israel is, is uh, committing. It contains a judgment against Israel from God. And then it ends with this statement that we've seen already. And his anger is not turned away. In other words, more judgment, whatever the judgment that God just promised, more judgment is coming. And then, and his hand is stretched out still. So today we're going to look at the sins and judgments, all, all four of the stanzas. Then we're going to look at that line, and his hand is stretched out still. We're going to look at what Isaiah means by that. And then we will have time, about 10 minutes or so, to repent. And we're going to bring our confession and repentance up and lay them at the foot of the cross. You can see from first service, there's, I don't know, a lot of confessions. So we're going to have time to do that at the end of the service. So let's look at the sins and judgments, these four stanzas. This first uh, stanza, verses 8 to 12, begins with, The Lord has sent a word, and the people will know, but they will say, In pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Israel, facing this crisis of Assyria, says, Hey, if Assyria wipes us out, maybe we can build bigger and better homes. Imagine the disgusting nature of that statement, right? Hey, if Assyria comes and destroys us, maybe we can use, if, if they take away the bricks and the sycamores, those are common, kind of common, normal materials in, in Israel. Let's use dressed stones. Those are the stones that were in Solomon's palace. Yet let's use those to build up our towers to ourselves. And if they get rid of the sycamores, let's import the good wood from Lebanon. Let's use the cedars, the expensive stuff. They're saying in a crisis, if God judges us, we're not going to receive that as judgment. Let's receive that as opportunity to better ourselves, to build bigger and better towers to ourselves. God is disgusted by this attitude. Don't we do the same thing in this nation? After 
Our growth group guide, by the way, did a very nice job this week of pointing out our attitudes in this. And our growth group guide brought up 9-11 as one of the possible implications of this. Instead of being humbled after the 9-11 attacks and seeking God, instead of soul searching, the constant drumbeat of our national leaders was, this will not change our way of life. This will not change us. So instead of soul searching, what we got was more war and more consumption and more debt. We didn't look at ourselves and go, maybe we need to change something about how we live. We got more of the same. The same thing happened again in the Great Recession, 2008 to 2010. Instead of looking at the strange ways and disgusting ways that we abuse uh, the financial system, we got higher CEO salaries and we got more gap between the poor and the rich. It didn't get better, it got worse. We doubled down on the kinds of people we were going to be. God's judging us. Let's become more of the same kinds of people. Same attitude we see in this, in this passage. We do that individually. Bankruptcies become opportunities to build bigger empires to ourselves. Divorces become opportunities to find a younger model. Criticism turns us into people who are defensive and proud. Instead of turning crises into opportunities to humble ourselves before our God, we turn it into chances to expand our pride. God will judge. In this passage today, God will judge. He will bring the surrounding nations and they will devour Israel. And once they finish devouring Israel, it says, and for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. It's going to get worse. Second stanza. So instead of turning to God in repentance, Israel turns to corrupt and foolish leaders. They did this way back in the time of the judges. They said, we need a king. We really got to have a king. God took it personally. God said, they have rejected me as their king. When we seek after strong and foolish and corrupt leaders, we are rejecting Jesus as king. But we do the same thing, don't we? As we've been saying for months, Jesus is our king. There is no leader now or ever who can possibly heal the damage in our souls or in the nations. There is no leader now or ever who could begin to heal the deep wounds that humanity has caused in all of creation. There is no leader now or ever who can deliver on the promise to fill the deep longings of our hearts for peace and wholeness and righteousness and justice. Only one, Jesus the Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the only one. So Christians in the world, since we follow Jesus and his kingdom, we as citizens of heaven have a few important roles in this world. Whether the United States is led by President-elect Trump or Secretary Clinton or President Obama or some decent king or some tyrant in the distant past or in the distant future, we have some significant roles. One, God calls us to honor the rulers that God has placed over us. Two, we support leaders as they lead in ways that advance the kingdom of God in this world. Three, we resist leaders and call them to repentance when they oppose the ways of God in this world. And four, we are always called to pray for our leaders. All the time remembering that our true leader, the one and only true leader, is Christ. He is king yesterday, 
today and forever. So I pray that whether you're excited, scared, cautiously optimistic, or despairing about a President Trump, that you will watch for God's hand over these next four years. Honor President Trump. Support him when he serves the kingdom of God. Resist him and call him to repentance when he opposes the ways of God. And always pray for him. Pray that God may give him wisdom, truth, grace, mercy, and strength as he leads the United States. And always remember that President Trump is not our leader. We have one leader, Jesus the Christ. God's judgment on his people Israel is to cut off the head and the tail. The head are the foolish leaders they've been following. The tail is the false prophets who've been giving them false hope, saying, oh, God won't judge you. No, he will. He will judge his people. And for all this, when he destroys the leadership of Israel, for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Third stanza is characterized by the word, the Hebrew word akal. In English, uh, I'm translating it devour. It's devour or consume or eat. Those are the translations most of the time. And you may have a couple different of the, a couple of those in your translation. It occurs, it says, wickedness devours the land like fire. Israel has let their wickedness just devour the people and the land. And then people will be devouring themselves and others. Jump back for a second. Wickedness will devour the land like a fire. And then it says, horrible image, God will intensify the fire. Wickedness will destroy the land and God's going to make it burn hotter. And so the people will be so destitute, they will start to devour themselves and their kin, their family. Uh, this is a horrible image. And so for you children, may want to plug your ears for a second. The language here suggests that the invasion and the wickedness will be so terrible, there will not be enough food for people. So literally, they will devour themselves and others. They will cut off the left and the right because they need food to eat. They will eat either, translations, uh, the, the Hebrew texts vary, they will eat either their own arm or their offspring. And so literally, they will devour themselves and others. But also figuratively, tribe, brother, will go up against tribe to devour it. Ephraim will go after and devour Manasseh, and Manasseh will devour Ephraim, and they both will come after Judah. These are brothers in the kingdom of God, and they are devouring one another, literally and figuratively. Can you imagine anything worse than God's people devouring themselves and others? So I would ask, do we allow our wickedness to devour others? Wickedness burns like a fire. Our sin destroys ourselves and others. And if we refuse God's help, we become destroyers in God's creation. God is ready to help and forgive if we will confess and turn to Him. One fairly obvious implication of this passage is that we, instead of devourers of our brothers and sisters, we should care for our brothers and sisters. Martin Luther King's oft-quoted statement that Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in the, the week is largely remains true. It's, it's still the reality that we don't care very well for brothers and sisters of ours who don't look like us. We do an okay job of caring for the ones that do look like us, 
But we need to be people who reach out and care for and love those who, especially our brothers and sisters. Our kinship is closer with an Arab Christian than it is with our neighbor down the street who refuses to love Jesus. We are brothers and sisters with them and not with our neighbors who have rejected the Christ. And this morning, our nation is very divided. It is important for Christians to step out in love with empathy and love for one another. Some of you are happy for good reasons that Trump was elected. Some of you are sad for good reasons that Trump was elected. Some are cautiously optimistic for good reasons that Trump was elected. And some are despairing for good reasons that Trump was elected. There are all kinds of bad reasons to be any of those emotions, but not everyone who disagrees with your perspective on this election does so for bad reasons. If you support Trump's presidency, then your job as a Christian is to go out of your way to stand with immigrants, refugees, minorities. And if you oppose Trump's presidency, then as a Christian, you need to honor President-elect Trump and pray for him. Our job as Christians is to respect our king first and listen to him first. And I said it last week and I'll say it again. Find someone who disagrees with the way that you voted this week and listen well to them and love them, serve them in some actual loving way. Let's be those kinds of people who love and care for our brothers and sisters and who do not let our wickedness devour them. The fourth stanza here, verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 10, talks about social injustice. The people of God are called in every time and place to care for the needy and the oppressed, for orphans and widows. And in this society, God's people were taking advantage and oppressing and writing that oppression into the systems of law. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So when we reject the orphan and the widow, the poor and the needy, we are rejecting Christ. When we care for them, we are caring for Christ. So God's judgment on these people who have rejected what God has said is exile and death. He he asked them, what are you going to do with your wealth when you're dead or carried off into a foreign land? Nothing. It's going to go to somebody else. It's not yours. God hates it when his people take advantage of others for their own gain. And our culture is full of it. I've been convicted that I personally participate in taking advantage of others all the time. And I'll tell you honestly, I don't even know how to make the changes necessary so that I might do a better job serving the poor and the needy and the oppressed. It's the system, it's the air that we breathe, it's the system that I walk around in. At this moment, all I know to do is to confess and to seek God humbly, prayerfully asking Him to help me take the next steps, the first steps and then the steps after that, to turn from oppression to mercy and compassion. So God, I pray that you would make me a more compassionate, loving person who offers life and love and care to the least of these. Okay, those are the four stanzas. What do we say about his hand being stretched out still? His hand is stretched out still. I take three ways that Isaiah might mean this. First, Scripture talks a lot about how God's hand stretched out is his hand of creation and redemption. Without his hand constantly upholding his creation, we would fall apart. If God removed his hand from us, we would literally cease to exist. We just wouldn't be here. 
God is always, everywhere, all the time, creating and redeeming. And so Isaiah 44, verse 24, it says, His hand stretches out and places the stars. His hand works to save His people from Egypt. He will save His people from Assyria. And without His hand, we would be destroyed. At the same time, the same hand that works to create and redeem is the hand that judges and goes to war in the Scriptures. The same hand that creates also eliminates evil. He fights against Egypt. By his hand, he sent the plagues. He commands nations and armies by his hand. And in this passage, we see he even judges his own people by his hand in order to eliminate evil and fight against sin and death to make creation good and whole again. The same hand that upholds and creates also works to eliminate evil and fight against it. For the Christian, God sends out his hands, stretches them out most clearly and firmly at the cross. There he extends his infinite grace and love to all creation at the same time that he most definitively defeats and fights against evil and sin. At the cross, God stretches out his hand in the decisive victory over sin and death. He fights against evil as all the powers of evil uh, arm themselves and come with a frontal assault against the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. They come and they're after him and God sends his wrath down and destroys evil and sin and death once and for all. Sin and evil are not gone, but their reign is over. Because of God's outstretched hand against the destructive powers that we humans invited into creation... Sin and death and evil are now defeated foes. At the same time, God is holding creation together and inviting the world to participate in his kingdom of love and righteousness and justice. The cross is a stunning example of God's great love for us, his great welcome to us. As he defeats evil, he welcomes creation to himself to be a part of the good that he's making the world to be. As God the Father stretches out his hand Against evil, God the Son stretches out His hands in a gesture of welcome and embrace. He takes our sin onto Himself so that we might have life. He welcomes and invites humanity, which has done the evil and destruction in creation. And He invites us into His kingdom. He is King. He holds creation together by His hand. He defeats sin and evil by His hand. And he draws us in by his outstretched hands on the cross. This is the God whom we fear and worship and love. So Jesus, we fear and love and worship your hands today that are stretched out for us and for all your creation. We so badly fail to be like you, and yet we really want you. Help us to give up those things in our hearts and lives that keep us from you and that deserve punishment. We praise you and thank you because you took the punishment that we had earned. You are good and holy, and we give up our lives to follow you. Amen. We're now going to have a time of confession. We have seen that Israel, God's own people, are proud and refuse God's correction. They follow foolish and corrupt leaders. They allow their wickedness to destroy themselves and those closest to them, and they devour their brothers and sisters instead of caring for them. They fail also to care for the least of these. In the same way, God's people today, we are proud and refuse God's correction. We follow after foolish and corrupt leaders. 
We allow wickedness to destroy ourselves and others. And we devour our brothers and sisters instead of loving them. And we fail to care for the least of these. God's people are the problem. We are what is wrong with the world. We all need Jesus to come and deal with our sin. By God's hands stretched out, he has defeated sin. And by God's hands stretched out, he invites us and welcomes us to him. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have minutes of silence, a long time, plenty of time of silence, and then some quiet music to help us reflect and think through what has God been showing you about things that you might confess. On the back of your bulletin, as we said, there is space to write down your confessions and then space to write down someone that you might confess to. It's important for the people of God to confess to God and to one another. Uh, as, as I shared last week, my story about my dream, we cannot hear and receive God's grace on our own. We need others to tell us. Um, and grace, in, the, in my story last week, grace revealed God's light and love and grace to me in a way that I couldn't hear without her. In the same way, we need others, we need to confess to others and receive absolution from them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a, a wonderful quote that says, God, uh, the Christ in me is weaker than the Christ in you. I can't hear Christ on my own. I need you to reveal him to me. So write down someone to confess to, and then this week, go and confess to that person. And if you are privileged to receive the confession uh, of someone this week, uh, I pray that you will respond with God's love and mercy and grace as he calls us to offer it. So, there are pens up here if you need them. Please just feel free to rip your bulletin and bring it up and let, we will lay our sins at the foot of the cross. Also, if you want to stay here and pray and receive prayer, feel free. There are people who want to pray with and for you uh, if that's something that you'd like to receive. So we're going to have some time of silence now. Before we do silence, let me read from Psalm 51. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. For we know our transgressions, and our sin is always before us. Against you, and you only, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words, and blameless as you judge us. So come and lay your sins at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ.